Welcome to Summation, a voyage through 35 years of great science fiction short stories collected in Gardner Dozois' reprint anthology series, The Year's Best Science Fiction. This episode, Distant Governments Are As Mysterious as Mystical Prognostications in Joe Haldeman's Manifest Destiny. I'm Jake, your host. Come with me as we traverse space, time, and imagination in search of each year's best science fiction. Joe Haldeman served in the American Army during the Vietnam War and was wounded in combat, receiving a Purple Heart. This experience of warfare is woven throughout much of his work, including his renowned novel The Forever War. His work traces themes of the inhumanity of war, the effects of warfare on societies and soldiers, and the emotional connections people build with one another. His stories reflect an abiding faith in humanity and the goodness of people, even in the face of conflict and death. He has won both the Hugo and Nebula Awards and won the Hugo, Nebula, and Dittmar Awards in 1975 for his novel, The Forever War. Fans of B-movies will recognize him as the writer of Robot Jocks, in which warfare has been replaced with gladiatorial battles between giant robots. He described the film by saying, To me, it's as if I had a child who'd started out well and then sustained brain damage. It's not actually that bad of a film, but it's not great either. Until his retirement in 2014, Haldeman was an adjunct professor at MIT teaching writing, and his latest novel was also published in that year. The summary is going to spoil the whole story this week, so if you don't want to be spoiled, then you should definitely skip forward until the summary is over. In Manifest Destiny, a young ne'er-do-well is working as a bouncer in a brothel in New Orleans in the middle of the 19th century. When he meets a handsome, charismatic stranger, they find themselves roped into a scheme to help Mexico win the Mexican-American War. If successful, the plot will make them all rich landowners and shape the course of history. As they follow a segment of the Mexican army across the country, the handsome stranger gets his palm read and told he will never die in Mexico. As their adventures progress, they watch Santa Ana fight the Americans, and the handsome stranger shows absolutely no fear of death, even as bullets fly all around them. Having survived the war, they retire to drink their rewards away in a border town on the Mexican side, where the handsome stranger finally dies after the U.S. strikes a deal to annex the town and the border moves before anyone living there knows it has happened. Borders and safety are impermanent when it comes to Manifest Destiny. For the passage from the story this episode, I'm going to read the section where Harris, the handsome stranger, and the title character are hanging around in a town waiting for Santa Ana to march towards the Americans and start the war, or at least continue the war. And this is a section where uh, the Harris is actually going to get his prediction from the soothsayer. Harris was jumpy. He kept putting his hand in his pocket to rub that Indian bone. That night, before he went up to the villa, he came to the hacienda with me and told Dolores that he's had a bad premonition about going to San Luis Potosi. He asked her to tell his fortune and tell him flat out if he was going to die. She said she couldn't tell a man when he was going to die, even if she saw it. If she did, her powers would go away, but she would tell his fortune. She studied his hands for a long time without saying anything. Then she took out a shabby deck of cards and dealt some out in front of him, face up. They weren't regular cards, they had faded pictures of devils and skeletons and so forth. Finally, she told him not to worry. 
he was not going to die in San Luis. In fact, he wouldn't die in Mexico at all. That was plain. Now, I wish I had Harris's talent for shucking off worries. He laughed and gave her a gold real, then he dragged me down to the cantina where we proceeded to get more than half corn on that damned poke on his money. We carried out four big jars of the stuff, which was a good thing. I had to drink half one in the morning before I could see through the agony. That stuff is not good for white men. Ten cents a jug, though. The trek from Tampico to San Luis took more than a week, with Washington riding in the back of the buckboard and Harris and me taking turns riding and walking. There was about 200 soldiers in our group, no more used to walking than us, and sometimes they eyed that buckboard. It was hilly country and mostly dry. General Parodi went on ahead and we never saw him again. Later we learned that Santa Ana court-martialed him for desertion, for letting the gringos take Tampico. Bits. San Luis Potosi looked like a nice little town, but we didn't see too damn much of it. We went to the big camp outside of town. Couldn't find Parodi, so Harris sniffed around and got us attached to General Pacheco's division. General looked at the contract and more or less told us to pitch a tent and stay out of the way. And then uh, I'm going to skip forward a little bit to another passage, which is where the battle is actually happening. It turned cold and windy that night. It seemed like I just got to sleep and drums woke me up. American drums sounding reveille. That's how close we were. Then a goddamn band playing Hail Columbia. Both Taylor and Santa Ana belonged on a goddamn parade ground. A private came around with chains and leg irons, said he was supposed to lock us to the buckboard. For $20, he accidentally dropped the key. I wonder if he ever lived to spend it. It was going to be a bad, bloody day for the Mexicans. We settled in behind the buckboard and watched about a thousand cavalrymen charge by lances and machetes and blood in their eye, going around the hills to our right. Then the shooting started and it didn't let up for a long time. To our left, they ordered General Blanco's division to march into the gulch, column style, where the Americans were set up with field artillery. Canister and grape shot cut them to bloody rags. Then Santa Ana rode over and ordered Pacheco's division to go for the gulch. I was glad to be chained to a buckboard. They walked right into it, balls but no brains, and I guess maybe half of them eventually made it back. Said they'd killed a lot of gringos, but I didn't notice it getting any quieter. I watched all of this from well behind the buckboard. Every now and then a stray bullet would spray up dirt or plow into the wood. Harris just stood out in the open, as far from the cover as the chain would let him, standing there with his hands in his pockets. A bullet or a piece of grape knocked off his hat. He dusted it off and wiggled his finger at me through the hole, put it back on his head and put his hands back in his pockets. I reminded him that if he got killed, I'd take all the gold. He just smiled. He was absolutely not going to die in Mexico. I told him even if I believed that bunkman, I'd want to give it a little help. A goddamn cannonball whooshed by and he didn't blink, just kept smiling. It exploded some ways behind us, and I got a little piece in the part that goes over the fence last, which isn't as funny as it might sound, since it was going to be a month before I could sit proper. Harris did leave off being a target long enough to do some doctoring on me. While he was doing that, a whole bunch of troops went by behind us, following the way the cavalry went earlier, and they had some nice comments for me. I even got to show my bare butt to Santa Ana, which I guess not too many people do and live. We heard a lot of noise from their direction but couldn't see anything because of the hills. We also stopped getting shot at, which was alright by me, although Harris seemed bored. I'll be honest, it was a little bit of a challenge to find a passage that didn't have a lot of racial slurs in it. The title character is a rough dude, and from a time when people still believed that human beings actually came from different species, and some people weren't real people in the same way as others. 
I'm of two minds about this kind of thing. On the one hand, I don't think it's good to blanket ban language, even offensive or hateful language, in media and art. When characters are supposed to be bad or ignorant or representative of a time when things were ignorant or culture was ignorant, I don't think we should necessarily clean up those parts of history or water down the way that bad people are presented. I also readily acknowledge that some people don't have the personal or educational background to use this language responsibly, even in the context of representing historical or personal evil. And finally, when it comes to reading out loud, I don't think it's my place as a white dude to go around saying racial slurs in any context. So that's why I chose to sort of edit the reading around the sections of the text that had more of that in it. Other than that last part about me not wanting to use racial slurs personally, I know that the idea of Hurstful language and art is actively discussed by a lot of people right now, and there aren't necessarily clear boundaries. I'm interested in things from the point of view of a teacher and how I might do things in a classroom, but I'm not a writer or artist for a living, and so I'm not really an expert on this idea of when is it appropriate artistically to use that sort of thing. And I think, like so many things, it's more complex than it at first appears to be. Those elements aside, the centrality of borders to this story stands out as its best feature. I've been lucky enough to live in a time and place when political boundaries are stable. The central driver of this story, the way that lives are changed by distant political decisions, is all too real for many people around the world and across human history. As of this recording, there's an ongoing war in Ukraine where Russia has claimed ownership of the eastern part of the country and the Ukrainians are fighting to get the territory back. One day, millions of people woke up to find tanks and soldiers in their streets and were told that they no longer lived in the country they had the night before. People were living perfectly placid, productive existences until a man a few thousand miles away decided he wanted to assert control over their land. The parallels with the handsome man in the story are clear. You think you're perfectly safe, but one day the ground opens up underneath you. While it was made before the current conflict in Ukraine, there's an excellent film called Atlantis that takes place in the aftermath of a fictional, in the context of the film, Russian-Ukrainian war that took place when the film was uh, made in the near future, actually, which is basically now. Uh, the film has incredible images, um, some of the most striking images I've seen in any film ever, and its uh, core, despite being about warfare and loss and death, is also about redemption, rebuilding, and the possibility of overcoming all of those things. I recommend it wholeheartedly. Um, again, the name of the film is Atlantis. But getting back to the story, when it comes down to it, Manifest Destiny wasn't my favorite. I think a lot of the stories in this collection take a particular narrative archetype or form. For instance, the wife's brain is in the computer from Vulcan's Forge, or in the case of this story, the prediction of a psychic that is accurate to the letter but ultimately misleading. They're archetypes or tropes. I'm currently reading Being Gardner Dozois by Michael Swanwick. It's a fascinating book in which Swanwick, who is himself a very accomplished science fiction author, interviews Gardner Dozois about each of his published short stories. I'll probably devote a whole special episode to it at some point. But one thing I notice is that Dozois describes many of his stories as a take on the whatever-whatever genre or a whatever-whatever story but with a twist, where the whatever-whatever is some recognizable type of genre of story, like a detective story, or the man finds out he's actually in a simulation story, or you know that sort of thing. I think Dozois particularly appreciates these exercises or riffs on classic tales and forms, and they can definitely be great, but I also think that they can feel stale or predictable if they're not truly putting a new twist or new shape on the type of story that they are. 
In the case of Manifest Destiny, the writing is very good. The perspective character is colorful and fascinating and a great storyteller. The setting is also interesting. I don't know much about the Mexican-American War or Santa Ana as a historical figure, but I'm certainly curious about him in that time period now. However, the plot of the story is as transparent as it can possibly be. You can see the twist at the end coming from around the curvature of the Earth on a foggy day. As a result, for me, the story feels a little bit trite or obvious, and the charm of the other aspects of it just isn't enough to overcome that disappointment. I wouldn't say that it doesn't belong in the collection, but at the same time, I don't know that I would say it's particularly good. So, not too surprising, looking at the rankings for the story so far, I'm afraid I'm going to have to put Manifest Destiny all the way down at the bottom, underneath Vulcan's Forge. Even with the problems that Vulcan's Forge had, I think that the um, storytelling was compelling, and some elements of it were a little bit more interesting or ingenious. It's worth noting, I guess, that both of those stories are that sort of take on a type of story that's common. Um, maybe I just don't like those stories that are form exercises as much. Um, we'll see. So Manifest Destiny comes in right under Vulcan's Forge as seventh out of the seven stories we've talked about so far, the bottom of the list, although I don't think it's a truly terrible story. Next episode, it starts in a diner and leaves you asking, uh, what? It is Avram Davidson's Full Chicken Richness. Special thanks to Joe Haldeman, rest in peace, Gardner Dozois, music, writing, and production by me. 